1: But my girlfriends and I decide we're going to go out one night. We choose to go to a movie, nothing real major, but you know, girl time away from the kids and the husbands and whatnot.
0: And we walk in there, and one of my girlfriends starts digging around in the theater seat, pulling the cushions apart, being all super
1: analytical, and it was weird. We're all like, what the hell are you doing?
0: and she tells us that she had an exchange student from Australia when she was in high school, and they were telling her about their cousin who had been pricked by a needle in a movie theater, and there was a note attached to it that said, welcome to the world of AIDS. A have you heard the story of. And written on the wall. And and everyone blood. has the different stories of all oh, this happened to my brother. This is. We are telling me. you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American
1: war. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story.
0: Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story.
1: Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans.
0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. We're so glad you're back.
1: Oh, and you're still pretty. I haven't told you you're pretty in a while, but you are.
0: Stop hacking into people's computers and turning their video cameras on.
1: My dad thinks people do that. And then I-
0: people do do I that. I know,
1: but he's been saying it since before they did. <laughs>
0: So, we do want to welcome everyone back. We've had lots of new ratings and reviews, and we want to thank you all for leaving ratings and reviews. We do want to remind you that we have our
1: Pause Go Read It
0: prize. That's right. This month, to celebrate our year anniversary, we will be giving away one Pause Go Read It prize, one book from our Pause Go Read It store on our website, just a story pod. And in order to qualify for this, you could just shout out to us. It could be on. Twitter, you could say, hey guys, this show's awesome, or y'all have a really weird sense of humor, or my favorite review ever.
1: What's your favorite review ever?
0: I I really wanted to hate you guys, but I'm absolutely obsessed, and that's my favorite review ever.
1: Well, I think that most people must start out being like, these assholes don't know what they're talking about, but we do have such a casual style, and we're drinking wine, and things. So I expect that, like, when they find out there's actually information contained herein, it's a little bit of a surprise.
0: Story of my life. Yeah. So, in order to qualify, reach out to us on Twitter, leave a rating, a review on iTunes, or just you, know, you can send us an email uh, at justastorypod at gmail.com telling us about your favorite urban legends or something you would wish that we covered. Or you could call the Urban Legend
1: Hotline. We are now taking calls. And we're going to have the phone bank open as soon as the show closes. No, it's open now. You can call now. While you're listening to the show, you could call the show. And leave a voicemail. And leave a voicemail. There's like a three-minute cutoff. If it cuts you off, call back. Leave another one. I'll piece it together. We'll get there. And the number to do that is 512-222-3375.
0: We do encourage you to check out our website too, justastorypod.com, where there will be information on every episode. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of sources and links because we research like mad people and videos and artwork and other information related to the show. And that'll be up every week. Ta-da! On there, you'll also find links to some merchandise, which Sam designed.
1: I did. I'm really excited about it. I actually did a new design using our motto, mission statement, tagline, whatever that thing is. Fears, fables, myths, and misdeeds, and it's black and white and super cool, and I'm really excited about it.
0: It's nice and macabre. Check it out. On there, you'll also find links to our Patreon.
1: That's right. We have one of those now. We're very cool people. So several people had been asking us about a Patreon, and we decided since we'd stuck around for a year, it was time to give the people what they wanted. Like all three of you. (laughs) But it's there, and we would appreciate y'all stopping by, and if you want to support the show, there are a variety of options. It's not per episode, it's per month.
0: Four-ish, depending on the month, episodes for each donation. And we now have our first mini cast-up. Mini-zone? Baby pod.
1: Baby pod. I'm a yes, and we are discussing a fiend.
0: A fiend, you say? A
1: fiend, I say. We are discussing the Phantom Barber
0: of Pascagoula. To find out more about that, head over to our Patreon page. So enough business. Enough business. Back to the story at hand. Back to the story at hand. <gasps> story Don't at steal hand. My I'm doing line. it. I'm doing it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm a fiend! <laughs> you Phantom Barber. So back to the story at hand. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> ah. <laughs> so today we have a classic urban legend. And it is the Pinprick Attacks.
1: I think this is one of the ones I think of when I think of the word urban legend, actually. For me, this is canonical.
0: It really is. It is like a top 10, top 20 urban legend. And it is one that is recent-ish as you go urban legend-wise because it's related to AIDS, tainted, hidden needles.
1: That sounds... Like, it has to be, you know, sometime after 1980.
0: Right, it has to be in the 80s and 90s, and it is, you know. And as the AIDS epidemic became worse and worse, and more and more in the public eye, and the fear grew, this legend grew along with it. You know, lots of versions of it, lots of emails and letters sent out about it. And as we've seen with some of these legends, sometimes the, like, actual print, like, the letter will state, like, oh, the Dallas Police Department says... Or this person says. And one did cite the Dallas Police Department and they had to issue a letter.
1: They let like, y'all quit.
0: Yeah, they said, it's all false. This has not happened. And we would ask people to stop forwarding the message to their friends because it's creating situations where police departments and emergency personnel are having to respond to inquiries to a situation that has not happened.
1: Which I think that that guy unwittingly wrote the
0: definition of what an urban legend is. <laughs>
1: Hey, uh we're having to talk about this thing that's never happened. He should be on our show.
0: So, you know, these legends go around and there are many different versions. Often it involves these hidden needles somewhere. Frequently in movie theater chairs. Oh no. Also they'll be in like phone coin slots and things like that. What's it
1: for why would you ever put a, a quarter in a in a
0: phone? A payphone. What's that? I think we've gone over this before. Okay. <laughs> So definitely something that came up in the 80s, and people kind of trace it back to a few different sources. Of course, there's just the great fear of AIDS that's going around at the time, but there was an incident in the 1980s and 1989 in New York City, where poor, defenseless white females were walking along the street, and...
1: Were they jogging?
0: No, Mm -hmm. not, not a white female jogger, sorry. I think they were wearing their furs. Mm. someone randomly runs up and pokes them in the neck with a pin. And this occurred to 41 random white females.
1: This really happened.
0: This really happened. We'll have a link to the actual New York Times article on our website.
1: I would find that very unpleasant if I was being a random white female woman person and walked down the street and got stabbed in the neck with a needle. I wouldn't like it
0: wouldn't be a fan of course (laughs) and the media ran with it and frequently stated that these pins could have been tainted with AIDS
1: yes in theory
0: but it's like correct but
1: there's no reason to think they were that's a weird thing to say that's a weird place to go with that one
0: eventually they did catch the people that were doing it it was 10 black girls and they were just kind of doing it for kicks
1: just playing voodoo
0: no just being annoying kids. But interestingly, this legend has much deeper roots.
1: How much deeper could they be? I mean, AIDS has only been known to exist since, like, what, 83?
0: You're right, but the idea of these random needle attacks, especially in movie theaters, have been around for a very long time. So let's move from New York City to our other favorite new place. New Orleans? New Orleans. It's yeah, a good guess. And this is back in the 1950s. 30s this was the fear of the needle men.
1: oh my god that sounds like the greatest batman villain gang ever
0: right like fingers needles mm-hmm. teeth the needles some like depictions of the scarecrow have him like with needle fingers yes yeah. but at the time young girls were warned to sit on the ends of the aisles at movie theaters because they did not want to attract the needle They these Needlemen were white slavers and they would come and sit on both sides of the girl, inject them with some kind of sedative, like morphine, knock them out, and then carry them away into white slavery.
1: Oh, is that a, is that a parish in Louisiana? <laughs> like, what do they mean? White slavery? Like, is that a thing? Like, was that actually happening? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> what do you mean, is it a thing? <laughs> well, I mean, it just seems like very... Like, where is white slavery? What is white slavery? Who's doing this? Like, where are these white slaves? I've not seen much. Like, it just seems sort of... Mm. Sex trafficking. What year is this? The 30s. Okay, so that's definitely 30s polite speak for sex trafficking. You're right. Sorry. Where no one was, though.
0: No, no, no. There's no actual reports of this ever <laughs> happening.
1: <laughs> it, it could have happened. Like sure. the pins being tainted with
0: AIDS. It could could happen any of this could happen (laughs) almost everything we've ever said could in theory happen you could have some guy with a hook just coming around just while you're getting your pants off that would be very unfortunate
1: (laughs) all right so white slavery the parish in louisiana got it needleman great batman
0: plot moving on (laughs) So, in 1998, this legend took on a new life, and it began to be circulated as a warning at raves.
1: Like, where people would wear the candy necklaces and suck on pacifiers.
0: Have glow sticks. Yeah. Lots of glow sticks. Lots of accessories, Lots of hair gel. hmm We've set the scene. Are you there? Have you been transported? And so, in this legend, people would be, like, hanging out of the rave, doing their... Glow sticks. Glow stick twirling. hmm And they'd be jabbed with an HIV-loaded needle. And then find a note in their pocket saying, welcome to reality, you now have AIDS.
1: That's really impressive that somebody could get a note in their tight pant pockets and stab them with a syringe and give them AIDS all in like a two second encounter.
0: Very coordinated attack. Yes. And this actually became very popular legend to where in certain cities, clubs saw these huge drops in attendance by like half.
1: I understand being afraid that it could happen. I It could happen. <laughs> and we're back to that. It could, I guess, in theory. Why do enough people believe that this is the psychology of another person?
0: Because they're high on ecstasy. Okay. So this is when the legend kind of gets combined with another similar urban legend called AIDS Mary. AIDS Mary? Yeah, like typhoid Mary.
1: Yes, I see the connection there.
0: So this would be an incident where you would pick up a girl or guy at a rave, etc., mm-hmm. and go home, do your business.
1: Get your glow sticks on.
0: That's right. You'd wake up in the morning and there'd be like a note left or, of course.
1: Lipstick on the mirror. Yes. Lipstick. Yes. Yes. Urban legend bingo. <laughs>
0: and it would say, welcome to the world of AIDS.
1: That's the worst theme park ever. <laughs> so I'm assuming that your AIDS marry or your AIDS what joseph shall we
0: and you have to use an m
1: no mary and joseph
0: no that's just math no it's that's terrible
1: so who was i'm assuming because we do this show that there was there was one asshole somewhere that actually did it
0: well there are a lot of permutations to this legend
1: well it happens
0: and there are a lot of real life incidences related oh so there were several real theater needle attacks. So in 1996 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana That's in the Parish of White Slavery. That's our old hometown. There was someone that sat on a needle. And it was full of AIDS. No. Who knows? They don't know exactly what the cause was, but this is very well documented. He sued the theater and won.
1: So to be clear, when I was hearing this urban legend, I always assumed it was just like a needle, like a sewing needle that had been dipped into AIDS contaminated blood. But these are actually supposedly syringes full of like HIV positive blood.
0: Well, I think it could be whatever you want it to be.
1: Because it doesn't have to be true.
0: Right, and you can't fit a hypodermic needle in a phone slot. Another incident occurred in October of 2005 in Athens, Georgia, where a woman sat on a needle in a movie theater. And, again, was not HIV positive, never tested positive. In March of 2008, police reported that someone had been embedding used hypodermic needles in park benches in New Waterford, Nova Scotia. But they never tested positive for infectious disease. In February of 2009, three people in Vancouver, Washington, were pricked by syringes taped in public spaces. One, to the handset of a payphone. Two, to doorknobs.
1: Why was there a payphone in 2009? We're back to this payphone mystery. This
0: is the real mystery. This is not serial. I'm not worried about the payphone outside of the Best Buy, okay?
1: But the payphone outside of
0: the- Ed no. Kemper was mm-hmm. so
1: tough. He put his hands on put his hands. Samantha. He on top of the payphone. He was six nine.
0: So, <laughs> welcome to the world of ADD. <laughs> there are several incidents of people being attacked with needles and medical lancets. What's a medical lancet? So it's like what you would use to test your blood sugar.
1: Is that like the finger sticks at the doctor? Yeah. Okay.
0: So in 1995, a 13-year-old boy brought a needle to school and stabbed 28 of his classmates.
1: Okay, how did the teacher not notice by number 20? How do you
0: get that many? 20. I think 20 is the top where the teacher should have been notified. And in 97, two teens at Exeter West, Greenwich, and Rhode Island, stabbed 32 other students. Late With what, needle? Medical lancets. Oh. And all students had to have blood testing done and get the hepatitis B vaccine. No one was found to have anything, Now,
1: I bet, like, they saw those somewhere, like, their parents or doctors, etc., or diabetics, and they were like, you know, it would be hilarious. I can see a 12-year-old thinking that's funny.
0: Oh, definitely. He's freaking asshole kid. Yeah. Um, there are lots of false reports Reported in the media mm-hmm. And of course if you google this you'll find all kind of fake News sites with these fake news stories But one that was actually in real News <laughs> websites was In Seattle in September 2014 You have this British tourist And he was standing outside of a bar He felt a prick on his arm noticed That a... happens
1: to me a lot at bars
0: Not that kind of prick uh... Noticed a woman walking past him Holding a syringe She turned around looked at him and said
1: Welcome to the World of AIDS.
0: Pretty much. Welcome to the HIV club. He did go get treated and report to the police two days later. Why did he wait two days? Right? And then, of course, there's no further reporting about it after this one story comes out. Sounds like it was a hell of a prank. Right? I mean, it's it's like an exact copy of The Urban Legend. It's too exact to be accurate. There's no way. And there are people who were attacked by... Supposed HIV tainted needles. There are several reports of people holding up convenience stores, etc., with needles, saying that they were tainted with HIV, and none of them ever have been.
1: There was a bank rob who managed to get like eighteen thousand dollars from bank tellers by telling them that he had AIDS, just kind of like mentioning
0: it in a note. Insane, and he didn't. No, there was this one incident in Maryland on May twentieth, nineteen ninety nine. Where a woman was at a gas station, I think she was checking her oil, and a man came up to her Mm -hmm. and asked her for money.
1: And she said, I'm busy checking my oil.
0: She said, I said, I didn't have any money. I said, I only had a dollar. He said that would do. He put one arm around me and kissed my cheek. He put another arm around me and stabbed me with a needle and said, welcome to reality. You have HIV. This really happened.
1: I can't get my head around it. Hold on. There are horrible people in the world. (laughs) I'm assuming that he did not have HIV. Because this would have been all over every news channel forever until we all died.
0: Right, he didn't. So they did find the man from the description. He was a local panhandler. He did have syringes on him. But he did not have HIV. And he was later sentenced to three years in prison.
1: Well, it's undoubtedly, and like not in a funny way, it is assault. And it is like causing mental anguish, and it is actual physical assault. But like, I can't get my head around what he was trying to accomplish.
0: By oh, no, I don't think he was all there.
1: But I mean, he had the line down.
0: Mine's well, a very common urban legend, right? So everything else goes, and that's like that's what's left after the
1: dementia sets in. Is that's urban all legend. All left
0: is this bullshit.
1: Okay, so these are people. Playing with the trope, right? Like, these are people kind of imitating the urban legend, obviously, to incite fear. But nobody's actually gotten HIV this way.
0: Well, unfortunately, people have. No. Yes. Both cases that I found were in Australia area. Australian people could be crazy. We love you, listeners. We love you. So, in Australia in 1990, you have the prison guard at Sydney's Long Bay Jail. Gary Pierce. So he opened a security gate for a prisoner and as he turned his back, he felt a jab in his buttocks. He turned and knocked a blood-filled syringe from the inmate, who shouted AIDS! and ran off. He went off book! He forgot his line.
1: (laughs) It's not funny.
0: It's not, because the prisoner, Graham Farlow, was HIV positive, and the guard did have a positive test two months later. Oh. And no, he did honey. and he did die of AIDS-related illness in 1991.
1: Oh my God. So
0: another awful story to start our day off with is in New Zealand and this was reported by the BBC on December 6 of 2009. So that we have a couple, a husband who finds out that he's HIV positive in 2004. His wife decides to stay with him for the children but will not have sex with him. In May, the prior year of the reporting the story, she did find a sting-like mark on her left thigh. Two days later, she woke to a stinging feeling on her leg. Four months later, at a routine checkup, she was found to be HIV positive. It was found out that the man had intentionally infected his wife with HIV so that they could both have it and that he could have sex with her again. All he said was he was sorry. He said, I used needles on you because I wanted you to be the same as me so that you can live with me and you won't leave me. And he was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison.
1: That's a really hefty sentence for New Zealand. That's such a sad story all around. Like, I mean, it's wrong, obviously. It's horrible what he did, but you have to wonder what social pressures and what personal pressures Put him in a mindset where that seemed like a good alternative to the bajillion other things he could have done.
0: I don't know the extreme details of the case, but you can have psychosis related to AIDS. Just saying. Not trying to excuse it. Just saying. It's a
1: horrible story. I don't like that story. I'm glad you
0: don't. (laughs) There's not even a punchline. It's just awful. You know... One folklorist, Diane Goldstein, was writing about this, and she just mentions, and I thought it was interesting, that this idea of poisoned arrows, poisoned thorns, poisoned needles, poisoned pins are extremely familiar and common in folktale traditions. Can you think of a few?
1: Oh, right. The spinning wheel, Sleeping Beauty.
0: She states that these, these needle attacks could be even seen as a disguised critique of medical authority that implies that a condom won't help me in the bedroom if the real danger is in theaters. And I think that's a super interesting critique because it talks about this kind of personal responsibility with AIDS and with HIV transmission. Because you have to remember what the HIV and AIDS crisis was like at that time. And I think that's something that has kind of been forgotten so let's refresh your memory
1: so buckle up folks uh we're gonna hop in the delorean and we're headed back to 1981
0: los angeles right so in june 5th of 1981 the cdc published a morbidity mortality report describing a cluster of five cases of this really rare opportunistic infection called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. And this was seen in five previously healthy young gay men in Los Angeles.
1: And at the same time, there was a woman in an office at the CDC who was in charge of dispensing drugs that were not widely used enough to have gone through the full FDA approval process and also were not profitable and therefore were not on the commercial market. And so the CDC would hold these drugs and keep them available. But doctors had to write in and say, hey, I need that drug. And so she got like five requests. And then she got seven requests. And then she had like 11 requests from the same doctor who was asking for a drug to treat opportunistic infections that were appearing in men who were young and healthy a short time before. And had suddenly become very ill. And she was like, have you tried the drug you're supposed to try? And he's like, yes, it's not working. I need it. And so she was, like, annoyed. And she's like, this doctor from New York keeps sending me these requests. He's an idiot. There's no way he needs this much of this drug. And so she wrote to her supervisor and was like, hey, either this guy's a dumbass or we need to look into this. And so years later, there was a little plaque put up by somebody that worked in the office. And by plaque, I mean, like, copy paper taped to the door that said, on this day in 1981, this office worker discovered AIDS. <laughs>
0: That's great. Just someone super observant. And so, in these cases, they also noticed other just unusual infections. So, when we say opportunistic, what that means is it's an infection that a normal, healthy person with a normal immune system can fight off with ease. So, you know, you will not get something like pneumocystis screeny pneumonia uh, that's now called Pneumocystis cerevisiae If you want to look it up Anyway
1: No one's going to be able to look it up from that pronunciation
0: <laughs> It's appropriate It's correct Say it again Pneumocystis cerevisiae
1: Okay, maybe that
0: <laughs> Or, you know, things like fungal infections You know, deep-seated fungal infections Your body's going to fight that off And they were noticing that these people just have This immune system shutting down And so this morbidity and mortality report Got picked up Got picked up by the Associated Press, L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and started getting noticed. Started getting noticed by the medical community. The CDC started getting a lot of letters reporting very similar clusters, including clusters of Kaposi's sarcoma and these other opportunistic infections. So Kaposi's sarcoma is a... I know. Yes.
1: I know. I know what that is.
0: Enlighten us, doctor.
1: It is a type of skin cancer, and it's normally seen in Mediterranean or men of Jewish descent, and they're normally over 50, and it's normally not a big deal, and they normally live like 20 years after being diagnosed with it. Correct,
0: and super rare. Even in that case, it's super rare.
1: Super rare NBD.
0: But they started noticing these clusters of them, and they were in young gay men. Who are not necessarily Mediterranean or of Jewish descent. Are over fifty. <laughs> On July 3rd, the New York Times publishes an article. Rare Cancer seen in 41 homosexuals.
1: Forty one at this point?
0: Forty one in this cluster. And so this is where that term that becomes very big at the time, gay cancer comes about.
1: But that is not it was not pejorative. It was not said dismissively like by other people who were like, oh, that's that gay cancer. It was like that's really all they had
0: to go on. Oh, I think it was used in every sense of the word. I'm but sure. Was,
1: no, but it was used within the gay community as well.
0: Right, but the gay community completely ostracized people with it.
1: Gay cancer was not like just some flippantly coined term, it was like just the best thing anybody had to call
0: it, I guess. You could call it Kaposi's sarcoma. I guess you could. <laughs> and so by the year's end, you had. 270 reported cases of severe immune deficiency among gay men. And 121 of those had already died. This was a fast-moving, unknown illness that was spreading very fast. And it began to be called GRID, Gay Related Immune Disease.
1: On a roll with this one. this time, there really wasn't a lot of writing or press around the actual individuals who had GRID or gay cancer or Kaposi sarcoma until this guy named Bobby Campbell was diagnosed. He was the 16th person diagnosed with AIDS in San Francisco. He was a very charismatic guy. He was a member of a group called Our Ladies of Perpetual Indulgence, and they were a group of drag nuns. Awesome. Yeah, and his name within the group was Sister Florence Nightmare because he was a registered nurse. And so he did the Florence Nightingale thing because he was also very clever. <laughs> I have to imagine it's like a roller derby name. He became really integral to the idea of self-empowerment for people with AIDS. And he was also integral in having that become the accepted terminology. And in the book and the band played on by Randy Schultz, which I read...
0: And we'll be referencing a lot in this episode.
1: It is 650 pages. It ends in 1987. So it's very dense and very good. And it's also very dated. But in a way that makes it feel like a time capsule.
0: You have to read it with a grain of salt. Yeah. And we'll talk a little more about that later on in the episode.
1: Anyway, Randy Schultz says, You know how gay people love acronyms and initialisms?
0: <laughs> I like a think is picking
1: on you about how much doctors love acronyms and initialisms, but so people with AIDS became PWAs. And that was kind of a thing that Bobby Campbell coined. He was just a huge advocate for, at this time, it was mostly gay men who were living with AIDS, but he organized support groups. He participated in conferences offering medical information like nursing conferences and stuff like that. He helped draft safer sex pamphlets. He allowed his Kaposi sarcoma lesions to be photographed for posters that were displayed in pharmacy windows. I mean, those were, I think, still under the lovely banner of gay cancer at that time. But he wanted people to be able to recognize the symptoms and seek treatment.
0: And... Yeah, he became, like, the face. He was, like, the first face of first what was called Kaposi's sarcoma gay cancer, and then later became known as AIDS.
1: Oh, and he embraced that. He wore a lavender t-shirt that said AIDS poster boy on it to a couple of rallies and he also always wore a button that just said survive like on whatever else he was wearing which I just kind of think is a, a very uplifting sentiment. He was on the cover of Newsweek with his partner and they were photographed embracing with their arms around each other.
0: Scandalous.
1: Right. Well the article did refer to Bobby too. His partner's name was Bobby as well but he referred to Bobby too as um, his friend. All I can think about is like how grandma at Thanksgiving is that shit. Oh god.
0: But the title of it was, you know, just big headline on the magazine, Gay America, Sex Politics and the Impact of AIDS.
1: Right. And it was actually a really historic photo, I guess, because it was the first time a same sex couple had been shown as a couple actually touching on the cover of a national news magazine ever.
0: Right. Not only was it kind of establishing that the first step in the normalization of that But also the kind of humanizing aspect of gay men with AIDS.
1: Right. They weren't all in leather on Folsom Street. Some of them were. And they were fabulous. But there was more to it than that.
0: So eventually the disease does get to be known as AIDS. And in 1982, the CDC does give this very vague case definition, which I will not bore you with. They're basically just saying it's killing their immune system. It's kind of all we know. Because it's all they knew. They did not have a clue otherwise. They did not know what was causing this disease. And they had lots of theories, as they should have. You need to investigate every damn angle when you're trying to figure out what this deadly illness is. They had guesses. They were educated guesses, and that's where you start. That's where you start. You start with an educated guess, and you rule out the easiest ones to rule out first, and then you just go from there. You start with the biggest ass list you can come up with, the biggest list you can come up with, and whittle it down.
1: She's Freudian Slip.
0: And so they were looking at the scene. They were looking at who was getting it. At the time, what they had reported was it was was gay men. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, oh, it's gay men are just going around, and they're partying and having sex. So it's got to be related to some of that.
1: It's either sex or drugs or glitter.
0: Yes. So they quickly ruled glitter out. Okay. Um, and next up on the docket were poppers. Which are drugs. Drugs. They're on drugs. Drugs. What were poppers? So uh, What are poppers? You can still do, yeah, you can still get poppers. Whippets? Yeah, it's like a whippet.
1: But designer whippets.
0: Designer whippets. Okay. And so they sent people out to the clubs In California to collect These drug samples
1: There's a great story about One of the CDC officials coming back On a plane from San Francisco And she's been out going to Leather bars on Folsom Street Getting poppers and like getting her hands on Poppers from all of, it may have actually been New York I'm not certain where she was traveling from But in one of the cities And she's back in Atlanta and she goes to get off The plane and her purse tumps over And a bunch of Drugs fall out (laughs) They're not mine, they're not mine, I'm sorry. These are for research, which by the way, next time you're caught with drugs, just say you work for the CDC. You're all good.
0: Gotta build an excuse. Well, so other things were like Crisco. Oh my god. Or or lube.
1: Crisco was actually used as lube in bathhouses in San Francisco and they would just have massive like vats of it out and everyone was dipping hands and other things all in the same thing. It was not pump or individual packets.
0: Which by the way guys in this episode we're going to talk about the existence of sex. Lots of different
1: kinds of sex. And
0: gay sex. And And so if you have a problem with reality. Maybe you should turn this episode off, but I have a strong feeling if you're listening to this show, you're probably okay with it. So another thing, and this is something that we talked about in my infectious disease classes in medical school, um, because my teacher was, of course, around when all of this came up, and he was just relating all of these crazy things they had. I mean, you know, one thing was that it was just related to them having all the STDs. Just immune overload. Right, which they had lots of them.
1: Right. It was not stigmatized to have STDs in this community at this time. And treatments for most STDs were so effective that people would just be like, I'll just
0: go to the clinic. Right. Hepatitis B was like the one thing that is not like a take a pill and go on. Yeah. At the time.
1: But the gay community in San Francisco and New York were actually integral in helping with research that led to a hep B vaccine.
0: Very true. Other things they were concerned about was something called, and when my infectious disease teacher said this, I about like, had to pick my jaw up off the floor. And it was something called gay bowel disease. Nothing should ever be called that. So it's kind of a real thing with a really bad name. <laughs>
1: Actually, a <laughs> lot of medical things are real things with really bad names.
0: Yeah, we try. And so it's um, it's an amoeba. It's an intestinal amoeba infection, Mm -hmm. so an amoebiasis, that you can get. And you would get that from having anal sex with multiple partners. That's kind of how you pass it around, because it's not something that necessarily, like, gonorrhea chlamydia that would, like, colonize you. You would have to kind of have as, like, multiple partners in a shorter period of time. This was something people were getting, and they thought maybe this is related to the amoebas. Maybe this is related to a virus that's carried in the amoebas. So that was an idea, and something that was thoroughly investigated.
1: I, I like gay bowel diseases, like, but it's not the worst idea.
0: No, it's really not a bad idea. This is the worst idea.
1: Oh, tell me, tell me <laughs>
0: <laughs> that and overexposure to sperm from many sources was having an immunosuppressant effect. Just going to let that, like, sit for a second.
1: I feel like I have a buffering bar on my face right now.
0: (laughs) My problem with this is, like, so wouldn't women that had lots of partners get it? I don't know. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea anyway, but that's where my mind goes.
1: Like, what do gay men do? They got sperm, right? Maybe it's the sperm. It's lots of sperm. It's all the sperm. It's the sperm and the Crisco. Maybe they're eating
0: sperm scones. Is that a thing? Now it is. (laughs) It will be in a month.
1: Sperm scone parties have taken hold.
0: Great. That's how we're going to get national attention. (laughs) I was just inspired by uh, <laughs> listening to this podcast, and I was like, I have sperm. I have... I'm a great baker.
1: I have time I and g- sperm. got nothing better to do. <laughs> so I decided to have high tea and serve sperm scones. By the way, if you do that, <laughs> I totally want to know about it. Please send
0: pictures. Not of, of the, the baking scurs. process. Of the scones. <laughs> and of your fancy tea. Not of how you made them.
1: And you have to wear a hat.
0: It has to be like a Kentucky Derby hat. Yes, yes. With like giant like sperm <laughs> No, no, I was with you <laughs> until that. I don't want to go to your tea party anymore. So, back to reality. Oh wait, this is all reality shit. Oh uh, no. So, in December 10th of that year, still in 1982, the CDC does report a Case of an infant with AIDS, and this person received a blood transfusion. It's just messing up that gay bowel disease sperm theories <laughs> so badly. And so, people start this kind of like this is kind of throws things off. I mean, people are still very much focusing on the gay community, but there starts to be some murmurs. The next year, James Alusky. Reports in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is one of the top journals, that there is evidence that suggests that household contact may transmit AIDS.
1: Oh, God. No. No, Oleski, stop it.
0: No, but the thing is, you gotta look at all this in the time frame. We don't know what the fuck is causing this. We're trying to figure everything out. And he's going like, I'm looking at the evidence. And he says, our experience suggests that children living in high-risk households are susceptible to AIDS and that sexual contact, drug abuse, or exposure to blood products is not necessary for disease transmission.
1: I might accept your, your hypothesis here, that they just didn't know any better. If the CDC had not released an MMR that said AIDS was not transmittable by household contact... Right down the road, like, I mean... Right,
0: like, in 83, on March 4th, so before this paper was published, there report reports suggesting that AIDS could be caused by an infectious agent transmitted sexually or through exposure to blood or blood products. And they start saying, okay, we gotta look at ways to prevent this, because they have a few cases of blood transmission in infants. They've got the gay community. And on September 9th, the CDC, going through all the research, I'm sure including Oleski's paper rule out transmission by casual contact food water air or surfaces i
1: want to know where this guy went to medical school because he's like well the moms have it and the babies have it so obviously it's not any kind of bodily fluid transmission he's good at sciencing maybe they were feeding them sperm scones don't feed your baby sperm
0: scones. so i mean like i said there's these murmurs About blood transfusions. But the focus, the aim, is on the gay population. Because they are the ones that are dying, and they are dying at a rapid, rapid rate.
1: The gay community feels the focus. They definitely realize that this is a problem that is most prevalent in their community. Most of the cases are appearing in large urban settings where there are active and connected groups of gay men. Like, where there are strong
0: communities. Right, because people have moved to those areas to be in that community.
1: It gets better. That's the idea, right? So in 1983, Larry Kramer, who is a Jewish-American activist and writer, writes for The New York Native, which is a publication for the gay community at the time, called 1,112 and Counting. And in this article, he puts forward some really incredible stats, which, to my knowledge, are accurate As far as what was available to the public at the time, so far there were 1,112 cases of AIDS reported in the United States. First reported in papers when there were 41. And a little bit of growth. Um, Between January 13th and February 9th of 1983, which is a span of 28 days, there were 164 new cases reported and 73 deaths. The total deaths at this time were 418 In New York City, there were 526 cases reported and 195 dead. 47.3% of all cases were reported in New York City. 86% of the cases died within three years of diagnosis. 72.4% of cases are in gay men. And at this time, there had been 11 hemophiliacs diagnosed. And then Larry proceeds to get pissed. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read some Larry Kramer. I'm not going to imitate an angry New York accent though. Okay?
0: I'm disappointed, but I go ahead.
1: Okay. And for the first time in this epidemic, leading doctors and researchers are finally admitting they don't know what's going on. I find this terrifying too, as terrifying and as alarming as the rise in numbers. For the first time, doctors are saying out loud and up front, I don't know. For two years they were talking like this. For two years we've heard a different theory every few weeks. We've grasped at straws of possible causes, promiscuities, poppers, backrooms, the baths, rimming, fisting, anal, intercourse, urine, semen, shit, saliva, sweat, blood, blacks, a single virus, a new virus, repeated exposure to a virus, amoebas carrying a virus, drugs, Haiti, voodoo, constant bouts of amoebitis, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, syphilis, gonorrhea. I have talked with the leading doctors treating us. One said to me, if I knew in 81 what I know now, I would never have become involved with this disease. Another said, the thing that upsets me most of all is that at any given moment, one of my patients is in the hospital and something is going on with him that I don't understand. And it's destroying me because there's some craziness going on in him that's destroying him. A third said to me, I'm very depressed. A doctor's job is to make patients well and I can't. Too many of my patients die.
0: There is some interesting writing about this time where this was the time when medicine was curing everything. Mm -hmm. We had vaccines causing autism. I'm sorry. Curing illness. We have new antibiotics that are just eliminating these massive infections. And all of a sudden out of the ether comes this thing and we cannot explain it.
1: We can't science it.
0: Oh, but we science the hell out of it. (laughs) But that doesn't come for a little while. Yeah.
1: So he continues, let's talk about which gay men get AIDS. No matter what you've heard, there is no single profile for all AIDS victims. There are drug users and non-drug users. There are the truly promiscuous and the almost monogamous. There are reported cases of single contact infection. And I think that provides a very interesting insight into the way this is being viewed in the gay community. Because people have not accepted that it's... You know, there there's a lot of othering going on even within the gay community. It's like, "Oh, it's just the it's just the guys that use drugs. I don't use drugs. I can't get it." Or, "Oh, it's just the people who are having like 30 sexual partners a night. I only have two. I'm good." It's just those guys eating sperm scones at high tea. I don't do that cuz I'm not cool. You know, whatever it is, there's a lot of othering going on. And I think that's important. And he goes on to say, "All it seems to take is one wrong fuck. That's not promiscuity. That's bad luck." And it rhymes, and I don't think for he meant it too. (laughs) He says hospitals are overcrowded, and the medical staff are becoming aware that the disease is infectious, and they seem reluctant to work with AIDS patients in some specific hospitals. And he cites the New York hospital and the VA. And then he talks about health insurance and welfare problems. Many serious victims of AIDS have been unable to qualify for welfare or disability or social security benefits. There are increasing numbers of men unable to work and unable to claim welfare because AIDS is not on the list of qualifying disability illnesses. I am angry and frustrated almost beyond bound of my skin and bones and body and brain can encompass. My sleep is tormented. My nightmares and visions of lost friends, And my days are flooded by tears of funerals and memorial services and seeing my sick friends. How many of us must die before all of us living fight back?
0: It's such a great rallying cry. Like, he is saying, you know people that have died. You can get this. It's not just the guy that's going to the bathhouse every day at lunch. It can be you, no matter what you're doing. And I think he brings up the frustration that the gay community had this time too.
1: I think of him as the angry voice in all that I've read. It seems like he is the person that got pissed when nobody else wanted to, when everyone else was like, they'll take care of us. They'll take care of us. Eventually there, it seems like there was so much faith and I don't know what had been offered previously that made it possible for people to hold on to faith as long as they did.
0: Well, I think some of it was, there was a large government, response to stds and hepatitis b and all these illnesses that were affecting the gay community and there were publicly funded std clinics that were taking care of gay men this need arose and it was helped and also i mean i think there's just there was just an idea of of positivity of progress of not wanting to go back
1: i mean yeah and you have to remember that harvey milk had been elected and was the first openly gay, publicly elected official in San Francisco. And this had happened within recent memory. Of course, he was assassinated, which didn't go over so well with the gay community. And then there was a riot when he, his murderer was only convicted of manslaughter. But the story remained positive. It remained a touchstone of progress.
0: But, you know, you mentioned Kramer and... He kind of mentions this idea later on. I think it's so interesting in hindsight. In his play, The Normal Heart, a straight character asks one of the gay characters, why did you not fight for the right to be married instead of the right to fuck?
1: That's paraphrasing.
0: Right, it's paraphrasing, but it's just an interesting concept in hindsight.
1: No, it is. It's like people had kind of condensed the idea of sexual freedom with the idea of gay identity. And it had really taken shape as right to do with my body what I want to and nobody can tell me how to behave and things like that and there was less of a focus on like and you'll even hear it now like this heteronormative lifestyle like it's like oh well, you're just like straight people but you're men and that's stupid that was not a commonly visible incarnation of the gay male identity In
0: 1983. One institution within the gay community, especially in San Francisco and New York and these larger urban areas, that really became the focus and the center of, well, the research, but also the public outcry, were the bathhouses.
1: Right. Those became sort of shorthand for promiscuous gay sex in the popular imagination. And within the gay community, there was a lot of... Controversy over what should be done about the baths and I think very well-meaning liberal-minded people didn't want to step in because they were emblems of freedom and emblems of empowerment and personal agency and choice within the gay community now it's not saying that every gay man was going to bathhouses all of the time but they were there and you could if you wanted and i think that is as much of the importance as people actually frequenting the baths
0: right so the gay bathhouses at the time were Something that was very different than the kind of heterosexual bathhouses. These were places that had orgy rooms. They had places that were very dark glory holes to where you wouldn't be able to see your sexual partner. But they also had places with light and with music. And they also had places where you could hang out. So you can kind of do whatever you wanted to do. If you wanted to go have a very anonymous sexual encounter, you could go in there and do it. If you wanted to go and socialize some, you could also do that as well.
1: Right, and these are not... This isn't hyped-up hindsight definitions of what the bathhouses were. It's not like some, like, crazy imagining, you know, through the lens of history. No, this is... There was an orgy room, there were glory holes, there were vats of Crisco sitting out. Like this is this is, you know, like Merv Silverman, who was the public health official in San Francisco at the time, you know, talking about it. This is Randy Schultz in his book. These are people being interviewed. So it's not just sensationalizing it. Like I think that's important to say.
0: Um, yeah, and so you know, we talked about all these STDs and Merv talks about that. The S T D clinics were publicly funded and were very available and there was a huge huge outreach to the gay community to help fight these STD rates. And by doing some of this, they'd really dropped the rates of gonorrhea and hepatitis B in this community. But this was, this was different. This was a killer sexually transmitted disease. There was a feeling just throughout the United States, throughout the outside community that this was their problem. This was the gays problem. This is something they brought on to themselves.
1: Oh, you sound like Jerry Falwell when you said that. Well, oh, he was all about it. Oh, oh, he was. There's actually a recorded interview where Gary Walsh, who we'll talk about later, called in to speak with Jerry Falwell on his program. And Gary Walsh was dying of AIDS. And Jerry Falwell told him that, you know, we all suffer the sin we bring on ourselves.
0: What a lovely man. I bet he went and... Had sex with all of his mistresses after that. Um, so, old good old Merv continues to say, "People talk about guilt and innocence. If you were a gay, you were guilty of getting AIDS. If you were a baby, you were innocent. But everyone at this time was innocent because no one knew that this thing was percolating through society. It was spreading in the early seventies, and San Francisco starts you know actually manifesting in the eighties. And this point, everyone." Was innocent, but at this time, now they knew. Now they knew that this virus, or whatever it was, they know is a virus. Yeah, something, something being sexually transmitted was causing these deadly illnesses. And now you can't claim innocence anymore. And they had to decide what to do. And he described the Castro District, whenever he arrived in San Francisco, as a vibrant, dynamic place, all hours of the day and night. By the early mid-80s, it was a funeral. There were people walking, hunched over, ashen gray, walking with canes, purple splotches. The best one way I could describe it is funeral. I mean, people were going to memorial services once, twice, three times a week. People were dropping, literally, like flies in the city. So this came the question of, what the hell are we going to do about this? And, of course, the question arose, should we shut down the bathhouses?
1: Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. No, people were not happy about
0: it. So, Merv Silverman was trying to decide what to do, and he spoke to Cleve Jones, who is a huge activist and is going to come up again later on. They were trying to decide if they should shut the bathhouses down, and Cleve calls him up and says, I can't defend you if you close the bathhouses. How can you say that? He says, I did and I do. But if you, the director of health in the most liberal appearing city in the country, do this, think of the impact that's going to have on less tolerant communities. We'll see an implementation of the sodomy laws, passage of laws. We'll see things against gays that we've never witnessed before or have witnessed before but don't want to witness again. And that was the feeling amongst the gay community. This would be the start of the slippery slope.
1: And I understand that thinking. I do. Every time they'd bring up closing the baths, there would be little ripples through the community. Like at one point, bathhouse owners formed a union. There were protests. Once there was a phone call that was like, oh, I hear you're going to close the bathhouses. So uh, when are you sending the boxcars for relocation?
0: There were even more personal pleas. You know, one gay man came up and said, please don't close the bathhouses. That's the one place I feel safe. I used to be a gay basher before I I acknowledged my homosexuality. I don't want to be the recipient of that. And I'm safe in these facilities.
1: They were a symbol. They were definitely a symbol of sexual freedom.
0: And these similar arguments were occurring throughout the country, and especially in New York. And the New York Times reported on it saying that attendance had declined at the 10 homosexual bathhouses in New York since the onset of the AIDS epidemic.
1: And this was reported in 85.
0: Right. But some of the owners report that business remains profitable despite the mounting public pressure that the baths be closed. But one of the owners said, I've gone through my own particular moral crisis with this. Am I profiting from other people's misery? I don't think so. I think I'm running an establishment that handles itself as well as it can under the circumstances
1: editor's note. St. Mark's Bath was closed on December 6th of 1985 after city inspectors at the bathhouse reported seeing 50 acts of unsafe sex involving more than 80 men, which violated the unsafe or high-risk sexual activity as defined by New York State's newly mandated regulations against sex in business establishments. In the court papers, the city emphasized, as it has in the past, that it was seeking not to single out homosexuals, but To protect public health, Jack Stoddard, a manager of the bathhouse, called the state rules very anti-homosexual.
0: Right, so there was just that competing views. Even the people in the community are like, okay, I know this might be a public risk, but it's also the symbol. What are we going to do? That conflict just arose within the community. But, you know, as time went on, people did start to kind of get on the side of trying to find ways to prevent the transmission of AIDS. But also there was a huge push, you know, starting with Bobby Campbell to try to raise awareness and try to put a public face on it.
1: On Monday, May 2nd of 1983, there was an AIDS candlelight March and they defined it as a personal expression to honor the dead and support the living. And an estimated 10,000 people showed up in San Francisco It was organized by a man named Gary Walsh, a psychologist who had been diagnosed with AIDS in San Francisco. At a meeting of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club, he'd said, I think we have to do something. My friends are getting sick, and some of them have already died. As soon as he brought it up, the meeting was closed. They didn't want to get involved, so he organized it privately. At the head of the march, there was a banner that said, Fighting for Our Lives, and it was carried by 11 men who had been diagnosed with AIDS. They allowed public officials, and other members of the community to take part, but they insisted that they remain behind them at all times and that the focus be on the men who had the disease. These men all spoke. They were the only ones allowed to speak. Bobby Campbell was there and he gave a speech and it included the lines, the people who have died from AIDS and those who are still alive who have AIDS and those who do not have AIDS, but are working to combat it are all in my family.
0: And he was working so hard to humanize this.
1: He was, and it was very important, I think, to everyone who had personally been through an AIDS-related death that people understand that these were not just numbers and statistics. The communities were very insular, and it was hard to accurately represent the scale on which this was happening to people who were outside of the community.
0: I don't think you can visualize the Castro as one giant funeral without seeing it. I think Merv does a hell of a job, though. He, he does a great job. But I can't imagine seeing it. I just can't. Like, I mean, I can visualize it, of course, from that description, but there's nothing like reality. Can
1: you imagine going to three funerals in one week? These are not pretty deaths.
0: No, they wasted away the skeletons.
1: The death scenes and and the band played on are like, I've cried more than this week. I didn't know I could cry, (laughs) but I've cried more this week during research than I have in maybe a year. For example, I mentioned Gary Walsh earlier, and he was the man who organized the Candlelight March. And he contemplated suicide during the time that he was going through the worst part of his PCP toward the end of his life. He has a lot of really interesting quotes, and we have those because his partner kept a journal throughout the time that he was dying. And there were days when he was incoherent, and there were days when he was comatose, and there were days when he couldn't breathe, and you could hear fluid crackling every time he breathed, and you could hear him cry out when he would take deep breaths in. I mean, it was just, it's not a quiet Thing. It is not a a car accident It's not something where you get it And you're dead 24 hours later It's excruciating And to know more than one person that died that way Just boggles my mind To know that this is a thing that is happening To people you love And that it could happen to you And nobody knows how to stop it That kind of fear and grief It's something that's very hard to imagine
0: right, And you can see that also leading to anger Yeah And not all the protests were as nice as the candlelight march.
1: No, that was pretty and sweet. A lot of the protests were, I think the only word, and I hate to use this word, I think the only word is cheeky. So like when Merv was supposedly going to make his announcement that the bathhouses would be closed in 84, we're going to call him Merv because that just feels good. A bunch of men came dressed only in towels, holding signs to protest. And they were all picked up, you know, by the media. And that was the image of... That announcement, which he did not actually announce that he backed out of the last minute and then said he needed more time to consider it and then recommended that safer sex practices be instituted and tried to ban the activities that transmitted the most bodily fluids.
0: Well, in 1983, you also had the National AIDS Forum in Denver. The group People with AIDS, PWAs, took over the stage and issued a statement on the right of people with AIDS To be at the table when policy is made, to be treated with dignity, and to be called people with AIDS. That was one of the big things they were pushing in the humanization of this disease.
1: Right, because they were called AIDS
0: victims. Right, and no one wants to be a victim. Well, I know one or two people, but most people (laughs) do not want to be called victims, especially if they are fighting. And these people were
1: Bobby Campbell was instrumental in that as well.
0: Right. He helped write the Denver Principles.
1: And I think the language was eventually updated to people living with AIDS. But at this point, nobody was living with AIDS.
0: And so as time moves on, we do eventually discover what causes AIDS. So in 1983, Dr. Francois Françoise sinoussi and her colleagues at the Pasteur Institute... Where Louis pasteurized things... He did. He also discovered what caused rabies and created one of the first vaccines, the rabies vaccine. I know that from a children's book. What books are you reading to our children?
1: I want my hat back (laughs) in a book about Louis Pasteur.
0: So they reported the discovery of a retrovirus called lymphadenopathy-associated virus. And they were like, this is probably what's causing AIDS. Turns out they were right. Now, a few days earlier, on May 13th, the Assistant Secretary for Health, Edward Brant wrote a memo talking about seeking new funds for AIDS research. And he says it has now reached the point where important AIDS work cannot be undertaken because of the lack of available resources, which will have a detrimental effect on CDC's important prevention programs.
1: So send money.
0: Yet, when Brandt. How,
1: wait, how is there a yet?
0: Oh, oh, you just wait. Brandt went to testify before House subcommittee about emergency funding, and he stated, and I quote, that it was unnecessary.
1: Um, okay. Well, I, um, we can't do the work we need to do on AIDS because reasons like money, yet unnecessary. So I think that's public
0: versus private performance, correct? Like, one is... Right, but why is he changing... This statement.
1: Because Reagan likes to not spend money. Reagan. Reagan. That's kind of his whole deal. That's what he did. He said, well, Nancy, and he had jelly beans, and he didn't spend money. And that's what he did. That's what I know about Ronald Reagan.
0: You were so well informed. I am.
1: But Reagan was really, really, really insistent that we not spend money. And he told everyone in his administration we should not spend money. And he did not want Congress going around him and spending money, so he told all the public health officials, Don't say we need money. And not he, I mean his entire administration, not like Reagan sitting there giving the all the orders. It was more involved than that. But this is as close to a like horrible government cover up conspiracy as I have seen. Oh, come on. We've read about some doozies. No, I'm sorry. Like, helps and more money. We need money for AIDS. No, we're fine. Yeah. People
0: are dying. Not to jump ahead, but I do have to mention that the next year, it was announced by the National Cancer Institute that Dr. Robert Gallo had discovered the cause of AIDS, a retrovirus he labeled HTLV3. Hecker also announced the development of a diagnostic blood test to identify this and expressed hope that a vaccine against AIDS would be produced within two years. Hope in
1: one hand and shit in the other, Mary, Margaret, Heckler, and see which one gets full first. That's a Wayneism. That's my dad. He has some doozies.
0: So I just mentioned this because it's a funny story because this French scientist, she discovered it. And we Americans are like, uh oh, no, sorry, <laughs> we did.
1: And I think that another part of that story that has to be pointed out, Gallo had been instrumental in discovering HTLV-1. And so he wanted it to be a continuation of that work. And he insisted that it was like related to a lymphatic cancer or like it was it was all very suspect. And then it was later discovered that the two viruses were identical, as in they had been pulled from the same sample. And it's quite possible that he actually stole the virus. He claimed that he synthesized himself. It's a whole science thing. If you get into that kind of stuff, science
0: conspiracy—it's a science conspiracy. It's really interesting. Well, and so Reagan and Jacques Troc eventually did come to an agreement where they both got to claim yeah, finding the virus co-discoverers. Yeah. Except, guess who won the Nobel Prize? Not Gallo. Not Gallo, because he did not discover it. Sorry. No.
1: And, like, he wouldn't share his samples of the virus with CDC.
0: I did not know that part.
1: One of his underlings got a job at the CDC as a retrovirologist, and he was supposed to be in charge of doing all the synthesizing of the samples and testing, like, trying to figure out testing and that kind of stuff. And he's like, if you leave me and go to the CDC to work for those assholes, I will not give you any virus. And he was like, okay, fine. I'm sure you're that big of a dick. And so he went and... He didn't. They got all their samples from France. But great story. Don Francis was the head of the CDC's efforts on AIDS at this point. Seems like a pretty cool guy. But he was trying to get funding. And he said the best illustration of how hard it was to get funding was at this time when they were working with this active AIDS virus or lav virus is what they were working with. All of the doors to the labs had doorknobs, like round doorknobs that you had to turn. And so people would have trays full of samples of this AIDS virus and they would need to hold it with one hand and turn the doorknob. And this sounds safe. It's not. And he was like, this is not safe. We need to do something. You can't just change the doorknob. Not allowed. So he had to write Washington. He wrote Washington. He's like, we need, we need doors. Can we get the swingy doors? And they're like, are you crazy? That's very expensive. No swingy doors for you. And he's like, can we get the little lever doors? They're like, submit a request. So he submits a request. And they're like, you submitted to the wrong department. Can you resubmit your request? And so it takes over six months for him to get the little pushy doors. And it was for a total cost of less than $5. A door? No. Oh, shit.
0: That's like a week's supply of Reagan's jelly beans. And seven axes. And God, Reagan... Anyway, so we talked a lot about how this virus, or this they know this virus yet, until the French discovered it. <laughs> <laughs> so AIDS is very associated with the gay community. But as time went on, they started noticing that it was in hemophiliacs. Like Alexei? I think he was dead by now. Yeah. Or was he? No! No, he was. Well, he, was. <laughs> he was. Member of the Russian royal family that had hemophilia. Anyway, so... In 1982, they started noticing that three hemophiliac patients had this immunosuppressive disorder. It reported to the CDC, and then they kept noticing more cases. And in 1983, Highland Therapeutics, who had to recall a lot of Factor 7. So Factor 7 is a blood product that severe hemophiliacs need so they don't bleed out and die. So it's important. And they had to recall this lot because the donor was identified as having AIDS. Okay, yeah, necessary, I think. No, for sure. And so by the end of that year, they had identified 21 hemophiliacs with AIDS. There had been no prior reports of immunodeficiency or immunosuppression in hemophiliacs before 1981. So they finally started screening the donors.
1: Right, but it was not like you think. It was a self-deferral process.
0: Well, it's important to point out they didn't even know it was a virus yet. Not really. And there was definitely not a test for HIV.
1: Right. So they had this questionnaire. It took about 30 minutes to complete. And they would have people fill out the questionnaire. And it was like, do you have any of these things? And people would say yes or no. And then they'd sign the form after thoroughly reading everything on it, which we all know From Apple Terms and Conditions, we don't do. They would submit that, and that was good. That was enough at that time. People working at blood banks were instructed to turn anyone away who had visible symptoms of AIDS.
0: Nice purple spots. (laughs) Can I please inspect your entire body for Kaposi's sarcoma?
1: No, no one was doing that.
0: Exactly. And so in 1984... Finally, the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council recommends that any lot of concentrate be recalled if it included materials from an individual who'd been identified as having AIDS or from an individual who, in the best judgment of the manufacturers, has characteristics strongly suggestive of AIDS.
1: So a lisp.
0: Yes. This guy was kind of effeminate. We're going to cut it, except not, because we're making a ton of money off this.
1: Well, okay, and it's necessary to explain that the gay community gave a lot of blood, especially in San Francisco, because Harvey Milk did things like making sure that the trucks that took the blood or the people that took the blood came to Pride, or at this time it's called Gay Freedom Day. It was not Gay Pride yet. I like Gay Freedom Day. I do, too, man. I don't know why it changed. Whatever. So, they'd come out to any explicitly gay event because they wanted to get the idea in the minds of the public that this gay community was very civic minded and they were contributing members of society. So it became very integral to that community to do charity work and to do public service. Right.
0: They can be normal people in the community.
1: It's the badge of like, I do my part. And it's also very related to the research that was done on Hep B. People in the gay community were actively participating in research for that. A lot of the Factor 7 that existed in the United States at that time was created using blood samples and blood donations from people who were participating in the Hep B studies during the time that they were trying to patent a vaccine.
0: So, in July 13th of 1984, after continuing to give these blood products to hemophiliacs, the CDC reported that 72% of hemophiliacs had the LAV antigen within their bloodstream.
1: So, it's like testing positive for HIV. Right. But not having AIDS.
0: Oh, no. AIDS is a completely different thing than having HIV. Should we clarify that? Yes. Yes. Okay, I guess we should do that. Putting my doctor hat on.
1: Oh, God, back away. It's got sperm all over it, folks.
0: It's just one of those big reflectors. You know, <laughs> you know ENT still use those?
1: Yes, I know, because you thought about being an ENT for five seconds just so you could wear one.
0: Just so I could have the hat. So, HIV is a virus. It comes into your body. It establish itself in CD4 cells, which are a type of immune cell, cell cell-mediated immune cell that fights off lots of different types of infections. Now, whenever you come in and get actually in the DNA of the cell, that's why it's a retrovirus, it puts itself into the DNA. And once it's in there, it starts to destroy your specific type of white blood cell supply. One has HIV until they have a very... Low amount of CD4 cells, this type of white blood cell, and that's less than 200. This is a later diagnostic criteria, or having a specific associated opportunistic infection. So at this time, that would be something like Kaposi's sarcoma or pneumocystis carini, pneumonia, PCB. So back to the hemophiliacs, all of them testing positive for antigens to this virus. But officials are still saying, oh, this virus doesn't mean you have AIDS. It doesn't lead to AIDS. They say, keep using it. Keep using it. You need it. They're worried about that blood supply.
1: But they really did need it, right? Like, if they stopped taking factor seven, if they, like, bump their elbow, they could die.
0: Mm, no, not bump their elbow. If they were to fall and bump their head, if they were to get a good fall and hit their head, they could die.
1: They just all needed sailor nannies. It's true. At this time, you have people like Joseph Bovee, who was the head of the Blood Products Advisory Council for the Food and Drug Administration, who was in charge of screening and deciding which blood products were safe for consumption and which were not. And he worked out of Yale, and he said that there was just not sufficient evidence to conclude that AIDS could be transmitted via blood before it was Formally announced to be a virus, even though they had seen about 48 cases of hemophiliacs with AIDS at this point. they, They were seeing a lot of infection among people who had received blood transfusions as well. But he was saying, you know, it could be a number of things. We don't know. We don't know that it's in the blood. There's just not sufficient evidence. We don't need to be screening. Do you know that it costs $6 more a bag of blood? To screen it. Now, there were ways to screen it. For example, there's a Dr. Engelman at Stanford began screening his blood before the recommendation ever came out, and he was screening for hep B because there was a high coincidence.
0: Which they should have been screening for in the first place.
1: They weren't screening for anything.
0: No. No, they weren't.
1: His clinic did not have these numbers.
0: So with this serious denial <laughs> and serious concern that they'd run out of blood supply...
1: Well, and, like, Beauvais had serious concerns, too. He wrote an inner office memo that said, like, we've got to figure a way to keep the lawyers off our tails on this.
0: Between 1982 and 1986, 8,000 hemophiliacs and 6,000 transfusion patients became infected with what would later be called HIV. So they learned this tragic lesson that the nation's blood supply, since it's derived from humans, is very vulnerable to contamination with an infectious agent. So eventually they did start testing it using the ELISA, the first test for it developed in France. And also heat treating it.
1: And the heat treating seemed to work?
0: It worked. Worked just fine. Nowadays, if it's positive, they're not gonna use it. But at the time they were finding ways. So we talk about, you know, this just concern with funding, this concern with the public image. And talking about reagan's policies reagan was very concerned with spending and he not wanted to dump a bunch of money onto the cdc and go against his cutting taxes and he also and he was called out for this a lot of the time he's still being called out for it now as he should be that he wasn't talking about it no no
1: reagan had nothing to say about aids nothing 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 jelly beans funny thing happened i don't know if you know this but along with his penchant for jelly beans and well nancy and things reagan had been a movie star
0: cowboy movie star
1: that's right he was he was a paragon of masculinity and being a paragon of masculinity in hollywood he made friends with other paragons of masculinity like rock hudson like that one his name is rock fucking hudson i mean like is there anything manlier than that
0: I know nowadays it sounds like it could be a gay porn star
1: name, but whatever. Okay, sperm scone. Let's keep going. Rock Hudson died of AIDS in 85. And because he had been at the White House for a state dinner, you know, like three weeks before he was diagnosed with AIDS, Reagan kind of had to comment on it. They were old buddies. He was a friend. And Reagan did comment on it. And he said this. Nancy and I are saddened by the news of Rox Hudson's death. He will always be remembered for his dynamic impact on the film industry. And fans all over the world will certainly mourn his loss. He will be remembered for his humanity, his sympathetic spirit, his well-deserved reputation of kindness. May God rest his soul.
0: That's nice. Notice anything missing? Mm, He's not talking about that one time... That late night shoot where Rock invited him over to the bathhouse.
1: And he went just to see what it was. And there were no jelly beans. No, um, no, he's not talking about AIDS. He's not talking about the fact that Rock Hudson announced that he had AIDS before he died. And maybe Rock Hudson didn't so much announce it as a French doctor said it. <laughs> the French! Yeah. And everyone knew that Rock Hudson died of AIDS when he died. It was not like it came out later. And so Reagan has this opportunity after the death of a friend and former colleague to, you know, acknowledge what's happened. But no, not so much. He does not. He later claimed that Hudson's death made the crisis of AIDS real for him and the First Lady. Speaking of the First Lady, there's evidence that Rock Hudson sent a telegram to her requesting that she or the president speak to someone in France and see if they could get him into this experimental drug program because he was dying, and he was in France seeking treatment because he couldn't get it in the United States. She wrote back. I think it's best not to get involved with these kinds of
0: things. Say no to drugs, kids.
1: So right, she this- said no to drugs. Actually, maybe she was just
0: holding to it. Right. So this had just huge media coverage. It was on Times and Newsweek featuring AIDS cover stories the week after his death. But eventually, with all of this media pressure, Reagan did finally mention it publicly on September 17th, and called it a top priority. And he did have Congress allocate $190 million towards fighting AIDS. This is a great example of this kind of back and forth, this kind of fight within the government for what are we going to do about this, for fiscal responsibility versus, I don't know, helping dying people versus the moral right my favorite
1: the moral majority had taken like that actual organization was all about blaming aids on god or saying god was blaming people and giving i don't know exactly what the thought
0: process was but somehow the thought process they were being gay and all having sex with men and that's against god and so he punished them with a plague aids why didn't lesbians get it because that's hot. God, that's so terrible. I'm just telling you what the average straight was thinking. So another great example of that just kind of back and forth, that fight in the government, is that the Surgeon General, so Surgeon General is Dr. Coop, He was a pediatric surgeon, and he was a badass. He's a public health badass. Besides the fact that he looks like a badass. He
1: looks like, throughout our research on this episode, Jacob and I have been referring to him as General Wrap It Up. Because he looks like a salty old sea dog who insisted on
0: safe sex. And he did. I mean, just to give other accolades, I mean, he was against abortion. That's kind of where he started. That's how he got the job.
1: Maybe he was just lying about that to get his foot in the door. I mean, okay,
0: whatever. We're going to go with that. that. (laughs) Um, But he also is one of the people that was instrumental in going against the tobacco companies. And he also was instrumental in fighting AIDS. He pushed hard for appropriate sexual education and for condom use and early testing. And in 1986, he came out with this. He said, condoms, testing, do it, men. They were testing everybody in the military. In 1987, the FDA declares HIV prevention as a new indication for male condoms. This was also the time that, hey, AZT was approved of our first antiretroviral drug.
1: Progress. Sounds like
0: progress. Right. But we also have things happening, like the AMA declares that doctors have an ethical obligation to care for AIDS patients. Why do you think they would have to declare something like that?
1: I don't want to be right about this, but I have a feeling I'm going to be right about this. There were medical professionals in this country that believed that they should not have to treat AIDS patients because it put them at risk of getting AIDS.
0: Very true. Uh, Oh, yeah, I know as someone that has treated AIDS patients, it makes me want to vomit, but other cases, other cases, and we're going to coop plays in. I promise. In August 5th of 87, you have a federal judge, and he orders Florida's DeSoto County School Board to enroll these three HIV-positive brothers. Now, these were all hemophiliacs, and they'd got it from Factor 7, and the community was not going to allow them into the school because they did not want HIV spreading around because they were so well-informed.
1: Like it's fucking mono.
0: After the ruling, an outraged town Residents refused to allow their children to attend the school, and someone set fire to their house, destroying it.
1: Because that's what parents with three HIV positive children, who are also hemophiliacs, need in their lives.
0: Right, thanks for uh, stepping up there. So, on October 14th of that year, you have this kind of interesting back and forth again. In a 94-2 vote, the U.S. Senate adopts the Helms Amendment, which requires federally financed educational materials about AIDS distress. what do you think? Abstinence. Abstinence. I was
1: so being sarcastic.
0: Right. Sexual abstinence and forbids any material that promotes homosexuality or drug use. Promotes it? No, that's the quote. And by mentioning it, You're promoting it. So Coop is sitting there going, we have to do this. We have to promote safe sex. We have to promote testing. He's a pediatric surgeon. He's a doctor. He kind of knows what he's talking about. In walks the Secretary of Education, William Bennett. And he disseminates in his department the first major recommendations on how to educate young people to avoid the disease. This is kind of under that Helms Amendment. And I have a feeling
1: a, I'm not going to like Bennett.
0: No. Here's a 28 page pamphlet cleared by the White House and is a model of moralizing and seems mainly to be meant as a challenge to Surgeon General C. Everett Koop. Bennett's booklet suggests the schools and parents teach restraint as a virtue, downplays the use of condoms and sex, and does not even mention the importance of clean needles in injecting drugs.
1: I want to give that man a high five. And by a high five, I mean on his fucking forehead with all the force in my body. So at this point, when this guy is making these recommendations, it's not as though AIDS is like under control and everything's fine either, is it? Oh, hell no. There's no way he can even think that. It's just that he would rather...
0: No, this is the same year that AZT comes out.
1: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so he would rather... Not teach sweet, innocent children about condoms because they're sweet, innocent
0: children. You say this like this isn't something (sighs) that we were discussing a few years ago.
1: No, I mean, but like at the height of the epidemic, like when people are still dying in such huge numbers. How can that not inform your opinion? So there were assholes at every level of the education system. Let's take a minute to talk about a not asshole. Let's talk about Ryan White. He was a kid who was diagnosed at age 13 in 1985 with AIDS, and he was a hemophiliac, and he was kept out of school. And Smith, who was an official in his district, said, We are required to provide education, and he will receive instruction at home. My decision was based on the unknowns and uncertainties about AIDS and the inherent fear that it would generate among classmates. We are in the habit of keeping kids out
0: who have communicable diseases. Eventually, it led to legal battles. I mean, this just shows just the lack of education that was there. People did not know what they were talking about because you have programs like Bennett's, like, "Hey, we're not really going to talk about it. It's like just don't have sex. Just don't be gay. You'll be fine.
1: You're fine. Just don't fine. have don't don't have don't have sex. Don't need blood. Don't be a hemophiliac. You don't use drugs. You'll I be mean, fine. Just say no. Just say no to all of it. Eventually, there was legal battle. Ryan White became sort of a figurehead. And a poster boy, but this kid was on actual posters. And the bill eventually enacted to make sure that people with AIDS had access to care, that their rights were preserved, was named the Ryan White HIV AIDS Program. And it's a federal program focused on specifically on providing HIV care and treatment services for people living with HIV Working with cities, states, and local community-based organizations, the program provides a comprehensive system of care for people living with HIV who are uninsured or underinsured. A smaller but critical portion of the program is used to fund technical assistance, clinical training, and the development of innovative models of care. The legislation was first enacted in 1990, and Ryan died in 91, I
0: believe. He was 19 years old.
1: And Ryan, of course, became very associated with pediatric AIDS because it was something that was not explored fully and a lot of the drugs that were used, like the retrovirals and other therapies that were used for adults, could not be used for children because they were not FDA approved for children. So there was a woman um, named Elizabeth Glasser who contracted HIV while giving birth to her daughter Ariel when she received a blood transfusion. And Not knowing that this had happened, she then passed the infection to her daughter through breast milk. And her son, who was born later, named Jacob, became infected in utero. Eventually, Ariel died of AIDS, and Elizabeth became frantic to see that something was done, that some sort of treatment existed so that Jacob would not die as well. She founded the Pediatric AIDS Foundation in her kitchen. And went on to do amazing advocacy and incredible work for that organization and was instrumental in drawing attention to children with AIDS in America and how that happens. Elizabeth died in 94, but her son Jacob is still alive today. So it's kind of an incredible story.
0: Yeah, it really is. You know, this is the time when a lot of incredible stories start to happen. People are really reaching out. In 1987, just a a classic moment in the kind of humanity of AIDS. Not necessarily the medical aspect of it. It is when Princess Di is photographed touching, touching the skin of an HIV patient. It's like Jesus touching the lepers.
1: No, it really was. I mean Princess Diana was kind of a weird cultural obsession,
0: even in America, to
1: see her, the highest of the high interacting with these people who have been so ostracized and so stigmatized by such large portions of the population was a very pivotal moment. It was something that people were like, well, if she doesn't, I can do it. The really refreshing thing is when I googled to find the picture, how many came up. It's not like she did it once for a photo op. She actually got out into the world, into the hospices and the trenches,
0: and went and spent I'm with people. Right, she helped really drive that fact home that you can be around someone with HIV and not catch it. She said, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hand and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. A compassionate hand.
1: If that doesn't make your eyes get a little like, then you didn't know the nineties. <laughs> and is a very Interesting counterpoint to that. We have Mary Margaret Heckler, who was the head of health and human services under Reagan. She wanted to be photographed touching an AIDS patient, especially after that paper came out that's like, don't touch
0: them. Photo op.
1: Yeah. So she went to New York and she was like, hi. Hi. I'm, I'm here for Reagan, and I need to get to an AIDS hospice because I need my picture taken with an AIDS patient. And so she had to call around to all the different hospitals in the city before she could find one that would let her enter the sick room of a person in AIDS hospice without wearing full surgical gear. And that wouldn't have done very well for a photo, now would it? There
0: is one photo. And it's ridiculous. It
1: is ridiculous. And the former mayor of New York, Ed coke is there too and they are both shaking this guy's hand and it looks so uncomfortable it
0: makes me want to scream it looks so staged like coke is actually shaking his hand mm. and then she's like touching his wrist yes it's like i'm touching him look 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 it it's is like so i touching you
1: it's so that it was an important thing that happened once once and i just think that it's setting those two images in contrast like the medical establishment versus somebody who actually gave a damn
0: no i I do think it's interesting to look at the the differences and it just is a great example of how the cdc was there were definitely some great people working at the cdc but the people at the head the people under reagan's administration they were just keeping this odd distance
1: i can understand that a little bit because if it's your job to fix it and you don't fucking know how How
0: do you internalize it? You put your nose to the grindstone. And there were
1: people doing that. That's what
0: they did, man. They did. There were
1: people doing that. Don Francis, I want to say again, was kind of amazing. And like Callie, the guy that came from the lab with Gallo to go to the CDC, apparently he did some amazing work. And in France, they were doing amazing work.
0: So, you know, we mentioned that not everything was a sweet candlelight march. There were people fighting and protesting as there should have been. There was
1: person. We're back to same person. We're back to angry person. Kramer. 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 He's still alive.
0: And he started ACT UP.
1: Which is a fantastic acronym.
0: Kudos. AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Their motto was silence equals death.
1: That was founded in March of 1987.
0: So he said we want to start a new organization devoted to political action. And he had 300 people sign up within two days. In 1989, they protested the cost of AZT. AZT treatment at the time was, oh, it was $10,000. And he was able to get the cost of AZT dropped. On October 11th, 1988, they shut down the FDA for a day. In 87, they staged a protest at the New York Post Office because they knew that people would be covering the last-minute tax filings. So this is on April 15th. And they also started using the pink triangle logo.
1: They did turn it right side up, though, which I think is interesting. Because it was an upside down pink triangle during the Holocaust. If you were Jewish, you wore the Star of David. If you were homosexual, you were labeled with an upside down pink triangle. And on their posters, it's right side up, which I think is interesting. Taking it back.
0: Robert Gold, a physician, was interviewed in Cosmo in January of 1988.
1: That's Cosmopolitan, the magazine. Oh, yes. A a, a Hearst publication. Very
0: prestigious (sighs) prestigious. journal. One hundred ways to please your man.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Take a rough pumice stone.
1: Bite his ear off. Then get a face
0: tattoo and call yourself Mike Tyson. You've been reading my journals? Yes. (laughs) Good. And he said that heterosexual women, if they had healthy genitals, couldn't get AIDS even if their partner was infected. That's a whole bunch of bullshit. And so they staged a response protest at the Hearst building.
1: And this was the
0: women's coalition within ACT UP. So one thing they also helped fight was ARC, ARC.
1: Right, and this was one of the things that came up during the cosmopolitan protest outside the Hearst building. They wanted to call attention to the fact that women were being diagnosed with ARC more than they were being diagnosed with AIDS.
0: Yes, and ARC was AIDS-related complex so earlier i mentioned that in order to have aids you either had to have a low cd4 count which that's not the definition until a lot later in time at this time it was that it was associated with some sort of serious illness such as Kaposi's sarcoma but women were getting things like cervical cancer something that a gay man cannot have (laughs) fyi how dare you say that (laughs) And so they were not diagnosed with AIDS, they were not granted access to the medical benefits that one would get from this that was so hardly fought for, and this helped spur the CDC to change the diagnostic criteria to where more women were included. Of course, this also caused the number of women in the U.S. diagnosed with AIDS in the U.S. to go up by 50%. Now, that doesn't mean that 50% more women got it, it's that they were actually being correctly diagnosed funny how that happens sometimes
1: and at this time you also have this public mourning was going on a lot more people were dying the cases that had been established in the 80s were kind of coming to fruition because you can have hiv for a long time even if you're not on antiretrovirals it has a very long incubation period, which that was one of the most disturbing findings during this big research frenzy that was going on in the early 80s. There was a paper written that said it was like a five-year. It could.
0: Yeah. It just depended.
1: Right. But that that was very scary. It's like how many people already have it? And a lot was the answer. You know, people started dying in even larger numbers. And so one of the more interesting projects that was begun as a sign of kind of public mourning was the AIDS quilt. And Cleve Jones, who we mentioned earlier, was instrumental in organizing the first pieces of the quilt and kind of getting that going as a national project. And what the AIDS quilt is comprised of are pieces of fabric for every individual who has died from AIDS in the United States. And... Each of the fabric pieces, the rectangles, are six by three. Those dimensions were chosen to reflect the size of a coffin. Each piece of fabric represents someone who has died from AIDS, and they are customized by that person's family, friends, and loved ones in order to commemorate them. For example, the, like, Freddie Mercury has a rectangle on the quilt, and his is you know a guitar, and Rock Hudson's has a Hollywood star, and... You know, some people put photos and people paint names and put symbols that are important to them. and They commemorate this individual who's died. And so these are assembled into massive panels. And each panel has about eight people's rectangles on it. And Cleve said that a lot of his friends didn't have graves. There were undertakers that would refuse to work with the bodies of people who, who had died from AIDS. There were families who wouldn't claim the bodies of people who had died from AIDS. And there were not really places to go, in the early days especially, to remember your lost loved ones. And so this was a lasting testament to these people. Eventually, 48,000 individual 3x6 memorial panels have been sewn together by friends, lovers, and family members. It was displayed on the National Mall in D.C. for the first time in 87.
0: And the last display of it, before they kind of re-displayed it later on at an anniversary, it covered the entire National Mall. Now, if you've ever been to D.C., you would realize that that is massive.
1: The first time it was displayed... It had 1,920 panels, and that's just people who've submitted them. That is not a representation of every person. Like, they're not including them. You, know, you There aren't blank squares. Like, these are just people who have made them for loved ones. As I said today, it's grown to have more than 48,000 squares. And it's part of the NAMES project, which is out of Atlanta. And so it's currently housed in Georgia, and it tours the country. So you can go see... It's a very iconic image and it was a very powerful statement and it's a community art project which makes it very interesting to me because it's it's material culture which is part of folklore. And yeah,
0: Quilting is a part of folklore. It's something that is mentioned a lot in reading. That is something because it's something that's passed on. Right. It's something that often tells a story.
1: So it's this very colloquial low grassroots expression. This is... Homespun family, friends, it makes it feel comfortable and close,
0: right? So, another case of just trying to bring this into the public eye, and there was more development from the kind of scientific standpoint in 1988. They established the first needle exchange programs in Tacoma Tacoma? and in San Francisco, yeah, and in San Francisco,
1: and that was kind of Clinton's one, like meh downfall is he really did not support needle exchange programs which should have but i think that it's so hard to do that as a politician
0: no this is one downfall
1: we're not gonna talk about monica
0: okay (sighs) so also this year our old friend sergeant general coop coop he launches this amazing program what does captain wrap it up do so he's like fine they're not gonna let me do through the school system i'm going to create a booklet called understanding aids and mail 107 million copies to all of the United States.
1: He snail mailed spam AIDS pamphlets to our body?
0: Everybody. <laughs> it's the largest public health mailing in history. Admiral, wrap it up, you old salty sea dog. He's like screw it, do it my damn self.
1: <laughs> Did he like hand deliver them?
0: Like, like was he pony expressing them across the country? I think he had soldiers like handing them out.
1: <laughs> I love this image.
0: So, speaking of community outreach, that year you do have a World AIDS Day established on December first, and we are releasing this episode in conjunction with that. We are. Oh, in nineteen ninety one, you have the Red Ribbon Project. But, you know, even with some of this progress, we do have HIV cases rising. In 1989, we reported cases reaching 100,000. Throughout all of this, we have public figures dying. In 1990, Keith Haring dies. In 1991, Freddie Mercury dies. And we also have very public figures being diagnosed
1: i'm not a basketball person it's never been my thing i did not realize what a big deal magic johnson was
0: oh yeah i mean he's up there with michael jordan
1: yeah but like i didn't know that i don't know he was not in space jam okay i didn't know (laughs) he was the three time nba MVP. he could do no wrong he was idolized in in the basketball world i assume there is one I've heard of it. In 1991, he announced to the world in a press conference that he was HIV positive and he was retiring from basketball. And this is from an original response article that was written for the New York Times by a man named Michael Spector. He went out to interview students at high schools the day after Magic Johnson made his announcement and retired from the NBA in the prime of his career. One Kid interviewed for the article says, He can be gay or straight, black or white, I don't care. What he is. He's magic. And if he's sick, I want him to get better. Nothing else mattered yesterday as the students struggled to absorb the numbing new equation, one connecting the great hero with an unspeakable disease. Frightened adolescents jammed special telephone lines in a student health office throughout the day. The phones of the New York City Board of Education rang without stopping. Classrooms throughout the city turned into tear-filled rap sessions. Clinics, already short of funds, reeled to crush inquiries. Right now... Many teenagers feel more vulnerable than they ever have before, said Dr. Alwyn Kohal, the chief of adolescent medicine at St. Luke's Roosevelt Medical Center, which helps run 17 school-based health clinics in the city. They are devastated and afraid, but they are willing to listen. We better speak to them now, because kids are kids, and soon they'll put back
0: on their man capes. And this was someone that everyone idolized. A hero that came out as HIV positive. It changed The conversation.
1: And I think it's so interesting because from the get, like, he is doing this press conference. He's leaving the NBA. He's under all this pressure. And I did watch the whole press conference because I've heard of basketball. He says, I'm HIV positive. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do the best I can. I intend to become a spokesman for HIV and HIV awareness. I'm going to dedicate my time to that cause. It is a worthwhile cause. Do not... Think I am giving up. Do not think that I will not seek treatment. I'm going to do everything I can. I want to educate young people about safe sex. I want young people to use condoms.
0: And this came out as the rate of HIV infection was just growing among young people, especially minorities.
1: For example, one official, Mark Smith, a vice president from the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation, says, my hope is that the black community will embrace this disease as one that fundamentally affects us all. This really teaches us, once again, what we should have already known. AIDS doesn't just affect the scum of the earth. It's not just innocent victims and bad people with bad habits. The pain is the same for everyone.
0: So finally, the conversation is moving along. We're finally seeing some kind of social changes. And Magic Johnson becomes this kind of leader in that fight. In that fight for public education. And this is a very important time. Like I said, minorities increasing amounts. In 1992, AIDS becomes the number one cause of death for United States men 25 to 44 years old. And in 1994, it becomes the leading cause of death of all Americans between 25 and 44 We finally start to get those, like, real diagnosis of AIDS. A lot more information about it. Finally start to get new drugs coming out. They're starting to get some positive changes. Heart comes out, which is highly active antiretroviral therapy because they have new drugs called protease inhibitors. And... Is this that
1: 30-drug cocktail? Yes, exactly.
0: And by taking that, you get this decline. Decline in cases. And in 1996, you have this first ever decline in cases of hiv so in all of these positive changes you still have these people coming out with aids denialism
1: no 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 you don't that's stupid
0: <laughs> no well you'd be on the right side of this but i found a story that has to be mentioned because it ties in with our legends so well dr robert Wilner wrote a is book. Is he? Yes.
1: Is he a yeah. doctor? No, he really is. Aww. He
0: wrote a book called Deadly Deception. The proof that sex and HIV absolutely do not cause AIDS. No. Now, he is a real doctor.
1: No, he's not. He was. No.
0: And he had his license revoked in Florida. Good. Oh, is he from Florida? Florida.
1: Florida man says AIDS isn't real?
0: Florida doctor God. says hey, AIDS. Yeah. yeah, Because While he was a kind of traditional doctor, he had started kind of going into the realm of quackery, Mm. and that food can fix everything, and if you just ate a good diet, your cancer would go away. And so he held a press conference when his book came out on October 28th of 1994. He brought a friend up, so he says in this press conference, this is not an act of bravery, but an act of intelligence. Debeable. so he brings this young man forward who's in a suit and he says let's become blood brothers he takes a pen and jabs this man andres who is hiv positive in the finger and then jabs his own finger twice and as he's doing it, he says i love life i really do i decided this is the best thing i can do with my life to make up for 25 years of practicing misdirected medicine Misdirected is what MD stands for. Mm. It does more damage than good. He actually never got HIV. What are the chances that he would from that kind of exposure? Well, I have the numbers. Of course you do. So, in needle prick transmission, the average risk of acquiring HIV infection for all types of percutaneous exposure,
1: percutaneous.
0: So, through the skin, um. is 0.3%. So, a 1 in 300 chance. So, in 2007, there was an article showing that there have been 98 global confirmed cases of HIV-established transmission through percutaneous exposure. So, kind of like your accidental needle sticks through healthcare workers. So, even if this guy was HIV positive, even if he did get a needle stick, he still only had a 0.3% chance of getting it. He really didn't get to go along with this too far, because on April 15th, of 1995, he died of a heart attack. Not AIDS-related, sorry. I
1: wanted to give this guy a Darwin Award. Oh, he deserves it.
0: So, we do have someone trying to get HIV through a needle stick. Fail- and failing. Or failing. He failed. As he did with Nelson. Everything else. Yeah. But, you know, as I was saying, finally at this time, even with these quacks running about, <laughs> we finally start to see positive Changes in 1997, heart, the combination drug treatment for HIV, becomes the standard of treatment, and AIDS related deaths decline by 47%.
1: Well, that's because you can't get it through sex, and HIV doesn't cause AIDS, it's just stupid, of course. I know that guy pricked himself,
0: apple a day, right? Keeps AIDS away.
1: Good to know. We're joking, we're so joking. Do not take that as medical
0: advice. You know, as we've discussed, you see these changes and depiction of AIDS patients throughout this time.
1: Right. So in 93, you have things like Angels in America, which won a Pulitzer. And you have things like Philadelphia with Tom Hanks that won an Oscar. And something that I remember when I was young is, and this is weird, I remember Beauty and the Beast. And I remember learning that the man who wrote all the songs... Howard Ashman had died of AIDS. I learned that when I saw his longtime partner accept his posthumous Oscar for best song for Beauty and the Beast, the song, not the movie. And he mentioned that this is the first time an Oscar has been awarded to someone we've lost from AIDS. And it was really, I mean, it was a kid, but it stuck with me. And now as an adult, when I go back and watch those movies and I look at the way Ariel's reaching out to be part of the world and I look at the way the beast is watching the petals fall off that rose and knowing that if they don't find the cure by the time the last petal's gone he's done for and he has to be a beast forever. When I look at that I can't help but see these themes and I also think about the way we were instructed to Love those that were different from us, and not judge people, and be compassionate, and give freely of ourselves, and be kind through these fairy tales. And I have to think that that informed my worldview in some way. And I kind of love Howard Ashman for that,
0: right? And he he died before he even got to see the movie. I mean, uh, you have to wonder if there was some kind of subconscious kind of idea. But that that kind of idea in media was just about it was a it was around. But this was an amazing movie that everyone saw.
1: So as we're talking about fairy tales and we're talking about the idea of heroes and outsiders and all of those classic themes, I have to wonder where is our once upon a time, once upon a time, there was a wicked stepmother, once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess. Where is our moment? Where's the origin story? Where are the heroes and the villains of this epidemic?
0: Well, I can tell you who they thought the villain was. So early on, epidemiologists were trying to figure out the source of HIV in America. They were able to trace sexual contacts from a candidate, patient O. O or zero? O, because he was from outside California, and they were looking at cluster cases in Los Angeles. Okay. And he could be linked to nine out of 19 cases in Los Angeles- 22 cases in New York City, and 9 more in 8 other cities. So overall, he was linked to 40 of the first 248 cases in the United States.
1: Well, that seems
0: not to sound too medical, but statistically significant. It is significant. This man's name was Gaetan Dugas.
1: Well, that is that's, that's a villainous name.
0: Right? So he was a flight attendant for Air Canada. And you know, at the time, whenever they kind of identified this guy, one of the researchers said, if it hadn't been this man, it would have been some other. Someone who was going to be labeled as the epicenter. And so even though he was called Patient O by the original research that released this cluster study, our friend Schultz
1: a gay himself, as they say in the 60 Minutes P,
0: who wrote and the band played on, labeled him as Patient Zero. Now...
1: That sounds better.
0: It does. Now, he was called Patient Zero by people at the CDC. It's kind of so that that was kind of a misnomer at the time. But whenever he heard it, he literally said, oh, that's catchy, and wrote it down. And the media took it and ran.
1: So Schultz put him forward, like released his name and everything in the book. Schultz was trying to chronicle... The epidemic and preserve that history for future generations because he knew that he'd witnessed something very historic he was an openly gay reporter for the san francisco Chronicle and had done a lot of real-time reporting on aids as the epidemic progressed throughout the bay area california and the nation and he felt it was his duty to record this history but in doing this he wanted to keep with that theme of putting a face on aids giving voices to the characters, telling individual stories. And he tells all the individual stories. It is a long book. It's a long book. And he needed a villain. He needed a bad guy. And Gaton Dugas, the mustache-twirling flight attendant from outside the United States, became that very logical choice.
0: Right. And it got picked up by the media, and they ran with it. And, I mean, it's important to say the publishers pushed it as well.
1: Previously, Gitan Dugas' name had never been released as Patient O. And that was a new thing. And suddenly, you know, years after he died, he died in 84. His picture and his name are everywhere, along with these very mm, slanderous statements.
0: You can say that. I mean, The Time released an article calling The Appalling saga of patient zero the new york times published a piece called the man who gave us aids
1: no no
0: and 60 minutes did a piece as well which i'm definitely putting that video up on the site we watched it and oh, the guy He's a good looking man he does he's say he's a good looking man but
1: man. like stuffy
0: anchor <laughs> which is fantastic but he also says he's a central victim and a victimizer and now, in 1993, HBO did a version of the book, and the band played on, and that just further cemented his role as the villain.
1: I want to know who played him. We should have looked it up.
0: And one historian says the character Duga, has every trait of a villain that America is looking for in the AIDS crisis. He's gay and unashamed about it. He's beautiful. He's even a foreigner who speaks with this seductive accent. He's the perfect villain.
1: Bonus points for my uh, audiobook. They did the accent. Awesome. Get on to God. It's strong French accent.
0: He was a Quebecois. There's a lot of writing about Schultz. You have to read the book. And as we said earlier, in the time, take it with a grain of salt. See the crisis we've described and see just how terrible it was. And he was trying to put a face on all of these things. And whenever he was writing to the publisher, he says that he is going to kind of create heroes and villains. He says, put simply, these will be the heroes in a conflict with, and to some extent triumphant over, the book's villains. At this time, he did not have a villain. His villain was the AIDS, which obviously is not going to work. If you're trying to create this humanistic story. From a narrative standpoint, no. If I was
1: editing, I'd be like, no, baby, you gotta do better. Let's take a minute, before we leave Randy, and discuss the fact that he'd been diagnosed with AIDS.
0: He did not know that he was diagnosed with HIV until the book was published. He refused to find out his test results. He did not want it to affect his writing.
1: It did. Not knowing did.
0: Oh, I I agree.
1: I went and sat in this for a bit. He's angry either way. There's no way he didn't have personal friends that had been lost. There's no way when he's interacting with the primary interviews that he's done and he's getting to know these men and he's been chartering this movement over the course of these years that he didn't have feelings that were being expressed. Like his personal, it was not journalistic and he knew it. He said that it was yellow journalism, even at the time he was writing it. He said that's the tone he wanted it to have. But his is an important voice, even if it's a little wrong
0: to me, I believe. It's an important voice. It shows some of the anger. But when you look at this person, I mean, he's just, he's so villainized.
1: Oh, guitar Yes. It yes. kind of just
0: makes me sick.
1: No, it, it's, it's unfortunate.
0: And, you know, even though some people like do kind of take Schultz's side in a way. And I can see both sides of the story. That's our job. Right. There are some quotes that cannot be denied. And he said in an interview, talking about him later, after the book was published, I think that Gaetan was someone who had never accepted himself as a human being, hated the part of himself that was gay, hated other gay people, externalized that self-hatred, and became what in effect was a psychopathic killer
1: well yeah you can't you can't say he didn't mean it or you can't say that it's a fair statement but i'm gonna make you think about it at that point he did know he had aids at that point people were decrying his book and saying that he was basically a gay chauvinist people were saying he was sex negative people were saying that he was too hard on the gay community they were saying he was a self-hating gay
0: well man look at that quote god projecting
1: a little yeah no that's what i'm saying it's not hard to see the psychology he was angry he'd gotten his diagnosis he you know knew he had aids he was dying who knows it could have been a man like gayton that he blamed i don't i think he's a person and i think he like i don't think he's an evil mastermind
0: he's not a sociopath this is a completely false characterization of him he was seen by people that knew him as kind energetic charismatic He even flew to the CDC to give blood samples, readily offered names of all his contacts. That's why he became the center of the cluster, because he cooperated.
1: There were probably other men who were just as mobile and had just as many partners that didn't want to give a list of names.
0: And he was willing to. He wanted to help because he had been diagnosed with Kaposi's sarcoma. And he kind of seen himself as a cancer patient for a while mm-hmm. before all this AIDS stuff came out.
1: Because he was before it was even called AIDS.
0: Right. And you have to remember this is 82. In that 60-minute piece, <laughs> they really definitely helped villainize him. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that once the guy kind of started to learn all the information as everybody else was, he stopped. He stopped having sex. He limited his contact with other people. You know, originally he kind of subscribed to the idea of, like, immune overload or the multifactorial theory that we talked about earlier.
1: Which he couldn't have known or understood were he not seeking out the information and actively researching his
0: condition. Right, and an interesting thing to me is that some people have read through all of Schultz's notes.
1: Right, because they're in a library.
0: I think they're in the San Francisco Public Library. Original drafts and notes from his interviews will have these stories, that do not go with the story he created for guitar such so as one where he was talking about somebody that went out on a date with him. And, you know, whenever they were kind of coming home, I think it was the kiss at the end of the night. A
1: okay. man with a hook.
0: No. Ah. guitar kind of kind of hesitated and said, w- we can't. It won't work out. I, I can't say anymore. But of course, that was removed from the final version of of story.
1: Yeah, I just listened to that. It's not in there.
0: He also volunteered at an HIV nonprofit prior to his death. But an interesting development that has literally happened within the last month is that researchers at the University of Arizona have sequenced the early HIV virus and compared it to Dugas, and they have found that he is not patient zero. They estimate that the virus came from Haiti. In 1970-71, it came from Africa before that. It spread through New York City. And then someone in 1976 took the virus to San Francisco. They estimate by the late 1970s, nearly 7% of gay men in New York City were infected with HIV. And nearly 4% in San Francisco were infected. So, Dugan was definitely not the cause of the spread. He is not the typhoid Marvin, as he's sometimes called.
1: Typhoid Joseph.
0: Marvin. But it seems that, you know, this idea of him being the spread of all of this, is, it's just a story. He was just one of many gay men that were doing what everyone else was doing. He just happened to get labeled and picked up and vilified.
1: Because he volunteered his information.
0: Because he helped. He helped identify it.
1: So maybe at this time when no one understood what this epidemic was at a time where people were attending three funerals a week and walking around like ashen skeletons on the Castro where purple lesions were appearing without explanation and people were angry and sad and scared and no one was helping. Maybe he wasn't the man who gave us AIDS. Maybe he was a man who gave us an insight into what was happening to everyone else. And the idea that we could blame someone as a villain in this time of innocence, as Merv Silverman said, a time when we're all innocent, a time when we don't know the horror that is to come. I have to believe that that's just a story.
0: Yeah, I think that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society 13.com. I like to listen.